and we'll hear from students who say, you know, I wasn't thinking about politics. And then I realized that my school had 10 year old textbooks and the school like three blocks away in the welfare neighborhood had brand new ones. And I realized that wasn't like a coincidence. That was because people have made decisions around who gets resources or who hasn't. We see applicants who talk about the effects of immigration policy or racial economic justice policies and how those aren't just things that they like learned about in history class, but are things that are are affecting their own lives. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Michael Michelson, who is the executive director of Progressive Pipeline. Progressive Pipeline places underrepresented candidates in paid roles as fellows at social change organizations, as well as providing them ongoing training, mentorship, and connections so they can become tomorrow's leaders. It's an interesting story. You should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Michael Michelson with Progressive Pipeline. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Michael, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, happy to do that. I am Michael. I'm the executive director of Progressive Pipeline. Our goal is to launch lasting, sustainable careers in progressive politics and social change to help build a talent ecosystem that looks like the diversity of our movement. Our core program and sort of the first program that we launched was a fellowship. So we find students who know why political issues matter on a personal level, have seen how it affects their lives or their families' lives, but might not be coming in, knowing that these kinds of jobs exist, seeing a path to that. We train them, we train their managers, we place them in paid internships and fellowships with political consultants and advocacy groups and labor unions and infrastructure groups. We offer them long-term career support and coaching. That's the core of our work. As we've done that, I've also started to see the ways in which there's a real opportunity to sort of build that long-term talent pipeline in progressive politics and so also work with our hiring partners to find underrepresented mid-career and senior level staff and to build the kind of people operations glue to make these kinds of careers more sustainable and to make hiring processes more effective. Seems like a, a worthwhile activity. Where did you grow up? What kind of education? What did you study? Why did you get interested in politics? Yeah, I guess my own personal path um, is a little a little different. So I grew up in Portland, Maine. Um, so not like real, real Maine. My father was a police officer for his whole career, became disabled when I was about six months old, so stayed home with me. My mother is a therapist, spent pretty much her whole career working with 
preschoolers, like three to five-year-olds who had just overall challenges. So folks who were getting kicked out of preschool because of behavioral concerns, who had stuff going on at home that made it hard to like show up as themselves. So spent like, and still does sort of spend her whole, whole uh, like working life on the floor with preschoolers trying to like um, get them to sort of show up in, in ways that they're comfortable with. Um, and then, you know, I'd always been interested in politics. I think my parents had a pretty strong like social change bent and really like made it clear that making some kind of impact on the world was an important thing. And then went to college, went to Yale, started to sort of learn more about the ways in which like political careers actually happen, sort of the mechanics of what it takes to like go from being somebody who cares about this stuff to being somebody who actually does this as a job. And one of the things that I realized was that as much as there are like big, malicious, Koch brothers style forces that are sort of determining who has access to political power and who doesn't. There are also all of these really boring like HR things that help determine that. Like if you think about anybody you know who works in this industry, they probably have some kind of bizarre story about how they landed that first job and then how that first job turned into a second job and a third job and a fifth job and maybe the reason why they're on a podcast like this. And that story usually doesn't look like there was an intentional effort to reach out to me. We moved folks through like a deliberate recruitment process. It usually looks like my uncle knew somebody on this campaign and he said I should talk to this person. And then suddenly I was working for this person. And so part of what I saw was that the ways in which we think about internships and fellowships, the ways that we screen entry-level applicants, some of the things that like often get maybe passed off to junior employees that aren't always at like the forefront of our attention those totally like determine who has access to real political power, who gets to run organizations and make decisions and who doesn't. And so kind of ran a, a pilot version of this while I was in college, had a couple of funders who said like, hey, this, this has some juice and then launched it sort of in, in full swing when I graduated. Well, tell me about that pilot project in college. I know what it's like to be in college. You tend to be fairly busy. How did it come about that you started a pilot project? Did you have people working on it with you? What was it? So there had been a, a pack that had been run by Yale students for a while um, that some friends and I kind of took over. The goal was to send college students to go work on Senate and House campaigns and, and pay them a stipend. And so kind of fell into that. Like, I think I had gotten involved because the person who had led it before was one of the only other like current students who was from Maine and reached out being like, it's a cool state. We should talk and then heard about what she was doing. I remember in the early days, it was all guesswork. I would just send cold emails to people who were like, it seemed like we're giving money to progressive causes and say like, hey, I'm doing this thing. I'm 19. Do you want to chat? And some of them said yes. And then kind of continued to run it, continued to try it out. I think one of the learnings was that Often, like electoral campaigns aren't always the best launch pad for folks who are stepping into this for the first time, that it can be more helpful to work in places that have just the space to have a long-term talent lens. But mostly it was trial and error. And then I think realized there was an opportunity to restructure a bit, hone the mission, and then really professionalize and scale it up. Well, a lot of times when you come out of college, there's a lot of pressure to go down a standard career route. 
both for the people that you might be trying to recruit and for you yourself. Why this for you? First of all, it was fun and interesting. I, I think second, I saw the ways in which this could have a direct impact. Um, I, I think that they're, you know, coming out of school, I, I think it can be hard to figure out like what you want to do in the world and how you'll make a difference. I spend a lot of my time talking to college students now in this role about that. And the ways in which this was just an immediate thing that I saw that I could do that other folks weren't doing, having gotten to know a lot of the fellows through this pilot, realized that one internship can make such a difference in somebody's life, right? Like that one first career opportunity can be totally transformative, not because our program is magic or because we have like the secret fellowship sauce, but just because everybody you talk to can think back to like some formative experience when they were 19 or 20 that really changed the course of their lives. And so having the opportunity to do that just felt like something I didn't want to pass up. Yeah. Interviewing as many people as I have about their career path through politics, you know, there are people who seem to have a conception of this as a career, some aspect of activism, elected office, staffing, whatever. But most people, it was more happenstance or who they sat next to at a table one day or one job early on there, they met somebody who recommended them for the next one and they stayed in that general arena. It is notable how much an event of like a first internship can get you interested in something, if nothing else, and say, hey, I like this and I want to do more of it. Totally. And that's not how careers in corporate America work, right? You never talk to a McKinsey partner who said, you know, like my brother knew someone at McKinsey and I showed up one day and then they were like, we need partners and you're here, right? Although I have, I have heard people who have gotten a job at McKinsey because, yeah, they saw there was an interview and they just walked down the hall to do it. They thought, no way I'll ever do that, but then they did. So, but you even know, that's that, strategic, it, right? Even that is because McKinsey is being thoughtful about saying, we want to make sure you're down the hall from an interview. Like, I think one of my experiences in college that really moved me to do this work was seeing that, like, every big tech company, every consulting firm was spending tons of resources and tons of, like, time, not just recruiting staff as a whole, but really leaning into diversity, equity, and inclusion. Like, every single major company pretty much has thrown whatever they can at trying to recruit a diverse bench of staff. And that's not because they're altruistic or because they necessarily all like care in their hearts about DEI, but it's because they know that if they want to succeed and make money and like achieve their mission, they need to recruit an effective team. They need to recruit a diverse team. And the way to do that is like you actively go to bat, right? You send folks to college campuses and say, we want you, you build a smart and thoughtful interview process, you actually sell candidates on the role. And so seeing, I think, the difference between my friends who wanted to go off and do consulting, who are being courted, who are being like moved through these processes so thoughtfully, who are having really intelligent conversations around like DEIJ versus my friends who wanted to work in politics, where it was completely and totally networking. Getting that first job was often not a function of how skilled you were. It was a function of whether you knew how to play the game or knew somebody who could teach you. And where like DEI wasn't necessarily something that was coming up at all. And like I think there's a reason why if we don't have those kind of intentional talent structures, our organizations look the way that they do and, and why some of these problems can feel so unsolvable. You could pass as white when I look at you. 
Why the interest in diversity? And I am, yeah, I, I am a white Jewish guy. I think that, um, you know, and growing up in Maine was not a conversation that was had a lot. I think what I saw in starting this program was there was just a need for more folks to step up to the plate. I think a lot of times white leaders in impressive politics are so afraid of doing something wrong around DEI that we just don't do anything. And I think it's reasonable to say, like, we don't want to hurt folks. We don't want to offend people. That's coming from a good place. But also when you kind of reach this place of stasis where you're just kind of sitting back and saying, well, this is a problem somebody else can solve, but I don't want to like step up and work on it, then things stay the same. And so I think one of the things that I try to be thoughtful about in my work is recognizing that like, you know, a lot of our fellows have a set of backgrounds and experiences that I don't have and I might not understand, but also they're ones that I can work to understand. And that part of what I can do is make sure that we're bringing everybody into a conversation around DEI and that like everybody who's working in this movement sort of in some way sees their role and their opportunity to move things forward. That we're not just saying staff who are from underrepresented backgrounds or staff of color are, are the only folks who should work to like make things better. May 2020, I guess, is when you came out and started Progressive Pipeline. What did you have in terms of assets, connections, funding, idea at that time? That was when we launched sort of in, in full swing, had some money in the bank and a pro bono lawyer and got a cohort of fellows on the ground at that point, thought that we would do in-person fellowships, thought that like really the plan was to bring everybody to D.C. and, and do something there and really saw a couple of things change. I think, number one, um, COVID was a really tough time for everybody in the world, but I think especially for the fellows we were working with, right? Many of them beyond the isolation and remote work came from low-income and working-class backgrounds, didn't necessarily have access to a quiet remote workspace. We're navigating the financial challenges that came with that often after losing on-campus jobs. And so I think it was an especially difficult moment for, for many of them to step into these kinds of roles, but also an opportunity to like make some money, to do work that mattered to them, to like see that they had a real impact. And number two, I think saw the Black Lives Matter movement and also a lot of largely white leaders in the progressive space, I think for the first time recognizing that some of the challenges that we faced around DEI were like not just the Republicans' fault. It wasn't just policy or ideological battle, but also there were opportunities in their own organizations to make things better and for us to show up like within our own kind of spheres of control as better and more thoughtful leaders. And so saw a ton of interest from organizations that I think for a while had maybe viewed this kind of work as a nice to have, or oh, maybe one day we'll think about that, or when we have some time or we're not dealing with a campaign, then we'll have these conversations, and who shifted and said, no, this is this is urgent, this is real. I, I think one of the things, conversations that we try to navigate thoughtfully, particularly around the fellowship, is that like, I think there's definitely a need for a stronger, more diverse talent pipeline. I think opportunities like the fellowship can be really be life-changing for fellows. I think they're wonderful for organizations. And I also think that there can be a narrative around a pipeline problem that's really challenging that sort of pretends that the only reason why we haven't necessarily built teams that look like the movement is because 
we don't have folks moving into that first step. And so one of the things that we try to do is to say, do a fellowship when you're ready for a fellowship. This is a great thing to do. And also work on some of the questions of power and culture and promotions and who gets to make decisions that also have held us back from kind of getting where we want to go. Yeah. Did you have to incorporate this as a type of organization? And also, how did you figure out what the business model is in terms of, do you just raise money or do you end up charging organizations for placing someone? How did you figure all that out? That was a journey. I think like I'm very grateful for our, you know, whole team of lawyers and stuff because I, I certainly wasn't qualified to deal with all of that. In terms of the business model, initially started just like purely contributions from donors, finding like wealthy progressive political folks, and then shifted a little bit. I think one of the things that we started to realize was that it really matters that as an organization you have skin in the game. Like if we go to you and say you want free help for a summer. It's almost too easy to say yes to. Who doesn't want free help, right? But what we found is that if you want to offer an experience to a fellow that's really going to be transformative, where like they're going to have a good time, they're going to do meaningful work, they're going to add real value. Like you need to think about that, right? You need to think about what they'll do, who will manage them, whether it makes sense for like an intern or a fellow to be at your organization. And so asking organizations to kind of chip in when they can both as a nice, like from a nonprofit ED mental health standpoint, is like more fun than purely relying on, on individual donors, but really was a way of making sure that the fellows could have experiences that they felt excited about, that where they were treated like real human beings at work, where they got to do, you know, meaningful, impactful stuff. So are you a nonprofit then? Yes, but have a significant earned revenue stream. Yeah. When you have this kind of model, there's really two sides to it right? There's find and recruit the students or the young people that are going to take the jobs, or maybe it's not only young people as you go. And then there's find the organizations and you kind of need both of those, right? And it's kind of take one step on one ladder, take one step on the other ladder and try to match them up over time as you grow. I assume how close did I get to what it feels no, like? No, that's totally, that's totally right. And I think one of the things that we found at least in the student recruitment side, is that getting a huge volume of applications is not super hard. We're at like 10 or 12,000 apps this cycle, like have a very large pool of students to draw from. That's huge. It's just a lot of like fellows who are in a, in a big, you know, Airtable sheet, basically. I think the thing that we try to be thoughtful about around recruitment is that often the folks who hear about opportunities like this and then immediately say, that's me. I'm qualified. I'm going to crush it. Like I've been spending, you know, 10 hours a day Googling progressive political opportunities. Those often aren't the folks that we most need in the movement. And the fellows who tend to do really well and for whom this can be really be a turning point are the ones where they're really not proactively looking for opportunities like this. They might not know that doing an internship is like a thing that you do where when they do see like these kinds of paid political fellowships, they might not think that they're qualified necessarily or have like explicit past paid political experience. They certainly can't afford to do an unpaid internship. Our goal in the recruitment process is less around like volume and just getting kind of people in seats. And it's more around how do we find those folks where like this wasn't what they were thinking about, where they might not have known that this kind of thing exists. 
And I've really found that like the most effective way to do that is through mentors, whether that's a student leader or an advisor or a professor, someone else on campus who's in contact with young folks who are figuring themselves out, having them just send someone a note and say, hey, I came across this opportunity. It seems kind of cool. You should go apply. That can get folks over that confidence barrier where then they can go to our website, then they can hear more about the opportunity, they can throw their hat in the ring, the application is built to be really easy, and then they can kind of step into that work. And so at least on the recruitment side, I think our goal is less like, let's get another 10,000 applicants, but more, let's find those students who are really going to thrive in these roles, but might not know that these kinds of things exist for them. If I were a student and I was listening to this, I would be pretty intimidated by that five-digit number. And I'd be like, there's another thing I'm not going to bother with. Why should somebody think that they have a shot at it? What are the characteristics of someone who is most likely to land such a fellowship through you? I think, first of all, if you're a student and you're listening to this, it takes like five or 10 minutes. It's very easy. It's kind of fun. We'll send you other opportunities. Like sometimes doing the game theory around whether this is worth it is not worth it. And like you could just apply. In terms of who we're actually looking for, I think we look for a few things. So first of all, do you see why this stuff matters on a personal level? Like, have you had experiences in your own life where you recognize that political decisions affect you or your family? That's one of the things that we ask about in the application. And we'll hear from students who say, you know, I wasn't thinking about politics. And then I realized that my school had 10-year-old textbooks and the school, like, three blocks away in the welfare neighborhood had brand new ones. And I realized that wasn't like a coincidence. That was because people have made decisions around who gets resources or who hasn't. We see applicants who talk about the effects of immigration policy or racial economic justice policies and how those aren't just things that they like learned about in history class, but are things that are, are affecting their own lives. And so candidates who are less strong will often do the like, you know, I was in high school and then like in AP Gov, I learned that racism existed. And I said, like, that's bad. But the candidates who really thrive are the ones where you can tell they're moved to do this because they like really know why this matters. We look for folks who are really open to trying this out. We, we don't need candidates who are, you know, 100% sure that they want to work in politics forever, but candidates who are still figuring out what they want to do and for whom stepping into this work would make a difference. We do like a hiring task to measure some basic people skills. You know how to tell your story for, for certain roles, some like analytical thinking and kind of numbers manipulation ability for other roles, writing. But really what we're looking for is that kind of passion, that work ethic and that drive. We found that candidates who have some kind of past work experience do really well, particularly folks who like have had real jobs, right? If you've worked in retail or food service, if you've like been responsible for doing something and somebody's paid you for that, that's a very translatable set of skills to being an organizer or to working at a PR firm, right? Even though it's not expressly political, you still build that just ability to kind of show up as a person at work and to get things done that really, I think, organizations value. There's a lot of people who've studied the hiring process and what it takes to find the best candidates for any kind of category of job. And this basically is the same process. And my experience is you don't get it right all the time. I think there are certain 
things that are known about the kinds of mistakes that people make when they're hiring. How do you think about trying to discern in an interview or through the other information you have about somebody or recommendations, what is going to be most likely to be a successful match for what you're doing? I think for us, and particularly on that kind of fellowship or entry-level front, I think broadly in terms of the mistakes folks make, I think people really overweight credentials, especially early on. Ultimately, a lot of the credentials that you're seeing, you know, as an intern in XYZ congressman's office, I won this award, whatever, that like a 20-year-old has are kind of made up anyway, right? And so I think that can often be a mistake and they choose like safe options, people who've like done a lot of similar roles before. When really, I think the function of an internship or a fellowship is to take bets on folks and to recognize that those bets don't always pan out, but that part of what you're doing is trying to introduce new people into this space. In terms of what we see as sort of predictors of success, I think often trying to figure out, is there a time at school, at work, anywhere, basically, when you have like had a thing that you wanted to do? that you sort of decided of your own volition to do, and then you got it done. And really digging in to what that process looks like. The like, okay, so what do you do when you have a, you know, kind of like large and ambiguous task? What is it that sort of propels you from having that idea to making it happen? Is this person sort of a self-starter? Exactly. And are they able to sort of just like figure stuff out that they don't know? That's huge. I also think you know, for most people who are really committed to it, you can do pretty well in an internship in progressive politics, right? Like we're not placing software engineers. Like a lot of these roles are ones where you really have to have work ethic. Maybe you have to have some writing skills. You have to be kind of gritty. But in a lot of ways, you have to care about it. Figuring out why are you doing this? Why does this matter to you? Who are you fighting for? Where can this take you in a really kind of direct and human way, not in the like, what's your 10-year path for your vision for your future kind of way. Like candidates who have those two things tend to really thrive in the program. To what degree did you look around in the progressive ecosystem at what kinds of organizations are already out there doing different kinds of recruitment, doing different kinds of training, connecting with college students and trying to bring them in through different routes, because there are a lot of things out there already. How did you look at the space or did you just kind of go for it? I think there are sort of two broad areas that we looked at. So first of all, within progressive politics, there are a lot of people who are doing similar stuff in sort of different directions. So I think about all of these candidate recruitment groups, like Run for Something, which has hosted a bunch of fellows that have really proved out that that kind of proactive outreach and support makes this huge difference in terms of who runs for office. And so seeing that like that broad set of organizations that had made that commitment were able to do that really well because they put that effort in, that I think was a really important validator that, that a model like this could work. There are other organizations in progressive politics that do youth engagement, that try and get young folks to vote, that do training. And I think of all of those as ways of sort of just amplifying each other's impact. Like our model of recruiting candidates and then directly placing them in these fellowships, I think is importantly different from what other groups are doing. But what we found is that when you can connect the fellows to opportunities like Arena or Change the Game or Generation Data, when you can find the other kind of 
staffing programs and, and youth engagement programs and get the fellows in the door, then that amplifies everybody else's impact. And then we also saw a lot of progressive groups that were trying to do it themselves. So where somebody in leadership said, we want to have an internship program, they put some budget behind it, they tried it out. Sometimes it worked well, sometimes it was harder. I think the thing that we consistently heard from them was, you know, we're trying to do our like core mission, right? We're trying to organize a labor union, or we're trying to run a political consultancy, or we're trying to like lead a community organizing group. And then at the same time, separately, we're also trying to like recruit and support and train these interns and realize that sort of by pushing our efforts together and working collectively, like that would be an opportunity for us to not duplicate work. And then category sort of two of organizations that we started looking at were folks that were ones that existed beyond the political sphere. So I think about groups like Teach for America, which really had this thesis, like however you feel about a lot of the other stuff around Teach for America, that when you make active efforts to recruit and train young folks, you can change how effective they are in their jobs, but also like whether they take those jobs in the first place. We looked at like corporate internship programs that are doing that effectively. There are other, you know, in, in finance and management consulting, there are other nonprofits that are pushing folks in that direction, but saw a unique opportunity around this particular model of recruiting fellows and then doing that like direct placement work that made a big difference. As you established yourself and were reaching out, were you welcomed in? Were people dubious? What was the general reaction? I think in terms of the organizations we talked to, I think the number one thing that we heard from groups was this has been on our list for a long time and we've never managed to make it happen. I don't think there was anyone we were coming to where we were saying this is a challenge and an opportunity where they kind of hadn't thought of that already. But what we saw was that, like, I think the people who most see this are often incredibly busy and have their own jobs and are not, like, calling up, you know, political science chairs at, like, universities they haven't been to and saying, do you know where students are? And so I, I think the number one reaction we heard was, it's just really good that we're sort of trying this all out together, that there's, like, a collective place to do this work rather than this all being kind of disaggregated. I think, like, anything you're doing around hiring requires a lot of trust, right? Like it's a big commitment to say, you know, we're going to work with you and then like, you're going to help us find somebody who's going to like be on our team for a whole summer. Right. If that goes wrong, that's not a fun time for anybody. And so folks had questions and people really wanted to make sure that this program was real and that we were doing meaningful work and that like they were going to get great fellows. We did some stuff to, walk folks through our process to make sure that partners could do like final round interviews with a, a slate of pre-screened candidates to kind of de-risk it. But ultimately, I think that the sort of balance that a lot of the organizations that we work with were weighing was that feeling that there's a real need for this and that this is something that they want to invest in versus the inherent risk of working with anybody external to do anything hiring related. And I think for the organizations that we work with, what they said was like, this is ultimately worth it. Okay, so we've talked a lot about the sort of student recruitment side. Tell me about the organization connection side and how did you go about that? It's been a long, slow journey. I think that really what we look for are organizations where at least there's at least one person internally who really cares about this stuff, who's probably been thinking about it and scheming on it for a while and has been trying to find maybe a way for their organization to make sort of deeper investments there and to find 
ideally at least one manager who's really committed to and has the capacity for for growth. So somebody who's going to say, I'm excited about working with a fellow. I want to invest in that fellow. I see the ways in which on a personal level, working with a young person who's entering the space feel really valuable. In terms of the mechanics of it, it was just a lot of conversations and continues to be. I think we're always looking for groups that want to sort of step into this work and want to take more folks on. I think people see the need and they see the opportunity. And they also see like in their own lives, right, the ways that that first leap into politics probably made a difference. And so that's been really helpful in in getting folks to sort of step up to the plate. So we've been talking very theoretically. Can we make this more concrete? Can you talk about a few of the people that you've placed? How did you find this person and what organization in particular did they end up at? And what was their experience like? Yeah, I'm always happy to tell you fellow stories. We have a lot of them. I think that one of my favorite things is hearing from fellows about like how they heard about this in the first place. I remember I was talking to a fellow who said she showed up in class and somebody had just printed out our flyers and left them on all the desks. And it wasn't the professor and it wasn't any of the students in the class. And it like definitely wasn't us, but she sort of saw it and saw it as like an external sign that she should apply. For a lot of fellows that we've talked to, it's somebody they kind of know. Maybe it's even an older student like sends them a text or an email and says, I think you're qualified. You should throw your hat in the ring. Talked to one student who told me that she had applied because like somebody's brother had heard about it from like his friend who had heard about it from his teacher. Okay, but let's pick a person. Take somebody and what's their name? Where did they land in terms of an organization? See, I'm actually happy to tell you about one of my current colleagues now who who ended up stepping into the program. So Seagal works with me, went to Ohio State all through college, like had seen I think the ways that politics had impacted her personally. Her parents immigrated from Somalia. I think that felt like the effects of growing up in Ohio and, and seeing sort of racial differences and disparities. Went to college, was really passionate about this stuff, but wasn't doing internships or fellowships in in school. She was working at Best Buy because like that's what you do, right? If you want to like be able to eat and survive and also be a student who's not coming from tons of money. Heard about the fellowship on a whim. I think it was through a connection of a connection said, this is something I might want to consider. I'm not like totally sure about it. I don't think I'll get it. Read on our application that we were really excited about folks who had worked in retail or food service, that we didn't require past political experience. What she told me later was said, like, this was the first time I saw an application like this and felt like it was written for me, that like, this wasn't something that where I had kind of had to like, bang on the door externally and say, will you take me? But that this is this is one where they saw my own lived experiences, my own work experiences as an asset, and like not something that I had to overcome ended up going through our training, um, going to work as a fellow at the Working Families Party, was an organizer for the first time, dealt with all of the stuff that you deal with as an organizer in 2020, angry voters, happy voters, grumpy volunteers. She went from somebody who I think was very external to the political process, who saw the ways that political decisions sort of acted on her, but didn't necessarily see an opportunity to make a a direct and long-term impact at WFP said, you know what, like, I am hooked, like, this is me, this is like what I want to do in the world. 
ended up getting hired on and stayed on as a full-time organizer, realized that like part of what she loved about organizing was the actual sort of voter contact and working with volunteers, but also part of what she loved was the opportunity to like mentor staff, to sort of build power, to help folks think, see their own opportunities to step into this work. And then after her time at WFP was up, she was looking for her next role. We had kind of proved out the earned revenue model a little bit and had um, some money in the budget, ended up hiring her on, and she's really helped to build the fellowship program and grow it and scale it. So there are a lot of stories, I think, but I think the overall arc that we often see is just this, I stepped into this role. I didn't know that these kinds of organizations existed or that I could be here. And then I got that one credential and like, there I am. I noticed that Maurice Mitchell, who is the executive director there, had like endorsed your process. Is that because of her or do you have a deeper connection to the Working Families Party? And, we and just him? had... We had a bunch of fellows at WFP and, and who had like a wonderful experience. And so that was that was helpful. And I think like they are an organization that's really aligned with where the fellows are politically and what they care about and where they see themselves in the world. And so that was a really natural fit. How did you find the constellation of organizations that you have and how are you over time working to broaden that out or extend it? You know, I think that like like a lot of things in this industry, it's a lot of one-on-one connections and people hearing about this somewhere. I think for us, the thing that I want to move towards is being in a spot where, you know, whether it's through this program or through others, everybody who runs a political consulting firm, who runs an organizing group, who runs like a infrastructure or civic engagement group in this space, sees that kind of talent building mission as something that they want to invest in, that we all sort of own our own parts in like building inventive leaders, right? That we're not just having the like, how do I find my executive director conversations? We're having the, you know, five or 10 years ahead of time. How do we build the bench so that we have a really strong pool of senior level candidates? And so one of the things that I'm, I'm working on is I think moving more, more organizations to really buy into like our kind of collective opportunity to invest in that. The day-to-day of finding new organizations is a lot of people will email me. They'll hear about it from a friend. They'll meet a fellow just like in working with other organizations and they'll say this is a really direct and tangible way both of getting like amazing talent at my organization but also of investing in the progressive talent ecosystem of giving students an opportunity that they wished that they had had earlier and so it's often yeah they see it somewhere they hear about about it from somebody that they know and then they decide to step into this what's your goal as far as doing this with more people. Typically with an organization like yours, that's one of the goals is if we're having impact, how do we have 10 times as much or hundred times as much? What's your thinking along those lines? I think about that sort of in two directions. So number one is just scale. We hit 300 fellows earlier at the end of last year. Please don't hit your fellows. No, we tried. That's a against, (laughs) against the, against the fellowship (laughs) agreement. So I've had a lot of folks move through the program and really want to scale that up. I think the thing that we're most committed to, though, is making sure that like we're always finding excellent candidates, but also that we're placing them in organizations that are aligned with their values and that are set up for them to thrive, that really see this not just as a couple extra hours of like help with a project, but as a chance to build talent and invest in people. And so we're hoping to kind of continue to grow that, but grow that with a lens towards making sure that the program 
continues to be a one that's like an excellent experience for the fellows, but then also deepening that support for fellows. So whether that's more alumni engagement, extra career support, us just having more of a hand and making sure that this fellowship is a first step towards a social change career and not a last step. Those are both sort of things that we're thinking about at the same time. So my guess is that if an organization wants to find a fellow through you, they just sign up on your website. Is that right? Yeah. And we like to have sort of a conversation to make sure that like a fellowship makes sense, that this is something that they're excited about, that they're in a moment where it makes sense to invest in a fellow and they have management capacity. But beyond that, we, we try to make the process as open and, and not competitive as possible. Have you noticed that there are other kinds of fellowships aimed at bringing people into the same ecosystem out there? I think there are others that are doing a really good job with slightly different sort of like lenses or models. So for instance, we work with Arena. They ran an amazing fellowship in Virginia and have done other fellowships to get folks onto state ledge campaigns that I'm sure they can talk about in more depth than I can. There are programs like Blue Leadership Collaborative that are fantastic. There are organizations that run their own internal fellowship programs. And I think of those all as opportunities to just sort of amplify impact across the ecosystem. Most of the other fellowships that exist have slightly different sort of directions or slightly different goals in terms of the level of seniority that they tend to recruit from and the actual like positions that the fellows hold. But overall, I think our challenge is not that there are too many efforts and investments in this kind of like pipeline building, but instead that a lot of organizations are playing catch up for a problem that I think hasn't been necessarily front of mind in kind of progressive political power until pretty recently. I mean, it does seem like if Schmidt Futures is also uh, have a fellowship program or something like that, that you could be sharing names that, hey, look, I found someone who seems like a great fit for you. I don't have space for them or whatever. I mean, any kind of collaboration like that in the cards? One of the things that we try to do is really once folks move through our program and we like are really excited about them and confident about them just to make sure that those are names that we're putting forward to other organizations to make sure that fellows have access to that. And so do a lot of proactive work to make sure that we're at least getting applications in front of candidates. And when we can, we're advocating for them. I think that like there is definitely room broadly for everybody in the sort of progressive movement to work together more. And I think talent is something that for a long time, people really felt like it was competitive, right? It was, you know, we have this small fixed pool of really good candidates and now we're all going to kind of fight over them. And I think one of the doors we're opening and, and conversations that we're pushing folks towards is trying to get more people to see that we have a collective opportunity instead of looking at that pool as always like it's going to be small and always like a, a sort of fixed sum. We have an opportunity to kind of expand that pie together. How's it been going on the funding side, aside from the payments from organizations? Who have you been able to raise money from? And is that something that you're able to expand over time? What does that look like? It's been going well so far. You know, we're still tiny. We have three full-time staff, but I think have seen increasing interest from funders in this kind of thing. You know, beyond just general operating support, one of the things that we've started to do is partner with funders, particularly foundations or sort of funder collaboratives who can use the fellowship as an opportunity 
to like strengthen their grantees sort of talent bench. So we, we just ran a pilot with the Rural Democracy Initiative to get, I think Sarah was on your on your podcast, to place a cohort of fellows at their grantees and see that kind of like targeted investment in grantee capacity building as another opportunity to really expand those funder partnerships. That sounds good. Have you had any notable mishaps with any of the people you've placed? It seems like anytime you start reaching couple hundred people, something's going to go wrong. I'm trying to think. We've had fellows who faced challenges. I think it's a precarious point in everybody's life. Like I think if you think about when you were 19, that's a moment of like sorting yourself out. We haven't had disasters. And I think one of the things that we, we think about is, you know, everybody who's stepping into an internship or a fellowship like this is probably going to come in feeling a little bit afraid, feeling like there are a lot of things that they don't know. They're probably going to make pretty big mistakes early on. You're probably just like overall stressed out and a little bit unhappy for that first week because you're like, what is going on here? And everybody else like knows all this stuff that I don't know. And so one of the real efforts that we make, both in training the fellows and in training their managers, is to just kind of flip that around a little bit and say, you know what? Like, it actually is normal that everybody knows more than you do because you're an intern and they've been working here and are making a lot more money than you. That one of the things that your boss is probably looking for is for you to be able to communicate thoughtfully about mistakes and ask questions that like nobody is expecting you to know all of the acronyms that they know. And then in turn to work with managers to say, okay, how do you like deliver feedback thoughtfully? How do you onboard somebody so that they're going to know that you're going to give them a lot of feedback and it's not because they're doing work poorly. And then to have fellows do weekly one-on-one coaching sessions with someone from our team who can really dive into that, like, do I feel like I belong here? Does my boss like me? Like all of the stuff that's going through your head. And I've found that that layer of support means that when there are mistakes or that when there are mishaps, it's like a funny, correctable story and not the sort of end of the experience. One thing I'm not clear on is what does a fellow get? So it sounds like there's some training and some placement, do they get like a stipend? Are they paid through you or are they paid through the organization? And what else would a fellow expect? Yeah, it's a good deal overall for the fellows, I think. So they get a few things. First of all, they get yep training through us. So mostly career readiness focused and all of the stuff that like probably you would want to know when you're stepping into your first job, but that no one's necessarily talking to you about. They get paired with a a coach from our team who meets with them once a week. They get long-term career support. So resume, edits, connections to employers, whatever they need to kind of turn that into a long-term opportunity. And then they get paid directly by the partner organizations at least 15 bucks an hour, sometimes a little bit more than that. And there's an expectation that the partner organizations don't kind of just treat them as like an extra set of hands, but build deliberate, thoughtful work plans to make sure that like, the fellows are both adding value, but also that it's a real learning experience. So we have trainings for their managers on like, how do you delegate? How do you manage with an equity and inclusion lens? And also like, what kind of projects can an intern do well? What kind of projects can an intern probably not do well? How do you balance long-term strategic stuff and kind of short-term ad hoc stuff and exposure opportunities? And so I think another thing that the fellows really get is just confidence that when they're placed in an organization that's working with us, it's an organization that is 
making an investment in their long-term future. But I think the biggest thing that folks get out of this program really is just that first step. What we have found is that the difference between coming out of college with no political experience and with no one sort of in this ecosystem who's willing to vouch for you versus coming out of the college with one internship under your belt, a set of references who will be like, this person is a badass and we love them, a progressive pipeline network, a resume that looks like the kind of resumes that hiring managers want to see. Even though, you know, a 10-week fellowship might not feel like a a ton, just having that credential, having that network, having that experience is totally transformative in terms of what your job prospects look like long-term. My guess is you're having fun doing this. I am. Yeah, it's a a great time. That's, That's cool. Is there a question that I should have asked you that I haven't? I don't think so. You pretty much covered it. Um, Yeah. Well, that's good. Anything else you want to say? I really appreciate you having me on. If you're an organization and you're listening to this, um, I'm happy to chat. It's like a great opportunity to build a bench. um, And yeah, really appreciate you, you having me here. And also, if you're a student thinking about this, you might want to listen to a few of the career paths of people that have been on the show because some of them meet exactly the kind of description that we've been hearing about. They got going by doing something like this or meeting someone somewhere. This seems like a great way to accelerate the process and to make it more intentional. So sounds good to me. No, I think that's right. And I think it's like they, um, one of the things that we notice from fellows is that they often, you know, meet people who are very senior or their organizations. And it feels like since they were like five years old, they had this like nine-step plan to build political power. And I think the reality of anybody who works in this space is that it's like people are well-intentioned and smart and work hard, but the actual like steps that you take are often luck or accidental or not totally planned. And so, yeah, just this podcast and hearing folks' journeys, I think is a great opportunity for students to see the ways in which you don't necessarily have to be fully, fully figured out before you step into this work. No, it's a good thing to know when you're in college. That was Michael. He is at progressivepipeline.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.